But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, this morning our our prayer is a simple prayer. We pray that you would grant faith where there is no faith, that you would strengthen faith where it's weak, and that you would help all of us through the eyes of our faith to look to the great reward that you have promised to those who believe. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we go any further, I'm going to check and see if this, it's actually going to work this time. Fantastic. It did not work in the last service. So, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb this, mor- uh, this morning and assume that you have all seen the movie The Prince's Bride, The Princess Bride, I'm sorry. Okay, I wasn't sure. In the first service I asked, I was afraid that maybe they were too old. In this service, I was afraid that a lot of you might be too young. Because it's, you know, a 25-year-old classic movie, one of my favorites. I'm not usually a huge fan of, you know, romantic comedies, but this is just great. It's one of the movies, if you haven't seen it, that's your homework for the week, okay? Take it seriously. Uh, It's probably one of the movies I quote the most often, especially when I'm doing wedding rehearsals. You know that scene? Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. I love it. Um, and it just lightens the mood at a rehearsal. So, it's good. Um, I love the story of it, and I love the characters, especially that group, the three of them, who kidnapped the princess. You know, you got the giant, Andre the Giant, and the Spaniard who's in it to avenge his father, and then Vizzini, the Sicilian. He, he has this word that he says over and over and over again, and it, what is it? Inconceivable. Right. And at one point, he said it like, you know, 10, 15 times in the span of a few minutes. And the Spaniard looks at him and says, you keep using that word. I don't think that word means what you think it means. 
You know, sometimes when I hear people talking about faith, I want to break out that line. I don't think it means what you think it means. Especially when I hear people connecting faith with things like health and wealth. Or when I hear people outside the church speaking as though faith is this irrational kind of thing. Or sometimes even in the halls of ECC when people have very reductionistic kind of ideas of faith. And faith is a prayer you pray, nothing more. And I want to say, it's not that. It doesn't mean what you think it means. It's more, it's bigger, it's deeper, it's richer. And thank God that he gave us Hebrews 11. Because in Hebrews 11, we don't just get a definition of faith. We get these portraits of faith. Where we get to see it lived out. And we get to see it in the life of people. Where the rubber meets the road. Or in this story, where the hammer meets the nail and you build an ark. Okay? We've been doing this series in, in the footsteps of faith. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the faith of Abel, who offered a better sacrifice. Last week, we looked at Enoch, who walked with God faithfully. And this week, we get to look at the story of Noah. Noah's one of probably the, the better known stories in the Bible. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, you probably heard the story of Noah. You might have even had a Noah baby room when you were a baby, right? With animal carousels and art. I mean, it's just, it's in the imagination of our world and of our culture. Matter of fact, you can go to most other world religions and to ancient myths, and there's some kind of flood story going back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Uh, There's one from the ancient Near East called um, the Gilgamesh epic, which records a story very similar to that of Noah and the ark. Now, that shouldn't be off-putting to us. It makes sense that a cataclysmic event like this would be passed on in our collective memories. But we're concerned this morning with the biblical account of Noah and the flood, the inspired account. And I'm not going to retell it. We just had it read to us, at least portions of it. Noah was a, a blameless man who, like Enoch, walked with God. That doesn't mean he was perfect. I'll refer you to last week's sermon where Bob explained that uh, exceptionally well. Doesn't mean he was perfect, but in a corrupt and fallen and depraved world, he stood out as one who was righteous. And he found favor with God. Things had progressed so far down the road of wickedness that God had made a determination that he was going to begin again. He was going to destroy the world and through Noah, repopulate it. So he sends a message to Noah, a message of judgment, but also of deliverance. And Noah responds and builds an ark in which he and his household are saved. You know the rest of the story, right? The, the ark, the animals, the rainbow. Uh, fantastic, wonderful account of a man of faith. A lot of times when we tell that story, especially to kids, it's, it's the animals that take center stage right? It's hard to compete with animals. Uh, But here we need to look at Noah and his faith, especially what the author of Hebrews says about Noah's faith. So let's just remind her. I'm doing what, I'm pointing it there, back there. Uh, But let's remind ourselves of what Hebrews tells us about Noah's faith. It says, by faith Noah 
being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So from this one verse in Hebrews 11, I think there are, it's packed, actually. There's a lot of things to comment on. But I want us to focus on four insights that the author of Hebrews gives us into Noah's faith. First, faith means taking God at his word. It means believing that what God says is true is true. That what God says will come to pass will come to pass. In the earlier portion of Hebrews chapter 11, the author focuses on Abel and Enoch's faith in an invisible God. God being spiritual could not be seen to the human naked eye. And so it required faith to even believe in the existence of God. The focus shifts a little bit now with Noah, and it's not just belief in God, but belief in things that are unseen because they haven't happened yet. They're still future. They're unseen because they're down the road. Noah is the the first in this series who acts in faith based on a direct message from God. God says something, and Noah responds in belief and obedience, in faith. He takes that what God has spoken is true. Now, when you think about the message that came to Noah and his response of faith, there's a dual nature to it. First, he had to believe God's message of judgment of anger, of wrath. Second, he had to believe in his message of salvation. Uh, Noah's faith could have been derailed on either point. He could have, when he had heard about God's plan to judge and destroy, he could have said, God's not going to do that. Uh, That doesn't seem like the God I know. Uh, That's over the top. That's too angry, that's too wrathful, that's too vengeful. It doesn't fit with a loving God that I, I know. But he didn't. He took God at his word, God's intention to judge. And he responded in faith, in belief, to the message of salvation. He could have doubted that too. He could have said, really, an ark God? Can we come up with something better? That's going to smell real bad, God. That's going to take a lot of work. A hundred years to build this mammoth ark. Noah's faith could have wavered at either point. And so can ours. So can ours. We could fail to believe that God is a wrathful, vengeful God. Matter of fact, many have ceased to believe that God could do what he says he will do. Just this week, a friend sent an article through Facebook, and I I know not to read these kind of things, and I still do it. The title of the article should have said enough, I'm sorry, conservative Christianity, I just can't do it anymore, uh, was the name of the article. 
He's got a lot of complaints about historic Christianity and its teachings. One of them is in a wrathful God. He says, God has nothing but affection for me and every human being. No condemnation, no punishment, no desire for revenge. Quite simply, I'm over a God who judges and condemns. My question, is God over it? Has God changed? The God who reveals himself as a God who gets angry at wickedness, at humans oppressing and being violent to one another. Has God changed? Has the God who punished sin in his son Jesus Christ on the cross, has he changed? Has the God who through Jesus spoke of final vengeance and vindication for the righteous, has he changed or have we changed? Our palate, our willingness to accept difficult things. Was Jonathan Edwards wrong? Almost 300 years ago, he preached what is now the most famous sermon in American history, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It is not an easy read. But he declared, it is a dreadful thing for sinners to fall into the hands of an angry God. Is it any less true for us now, or has it just become unpalatable? I don't think his parishioners really liked that sermon. It probably didn't make the top ten list of ones they wanted him to preach again. They cried. They weeped. But they also understood that it wasn't simply their, their tastes that determined what was true. There, there's a lot of reasons why we don't, why things like God's anger and vengeance and wrath are more or less, I should say, less received today. But I, I'm less interested in, about, in the whys. I'm more concerned with what happens if, when we lose our willingness to believe what God has said regarding his anger. What happens when we fail to believe that God is who he says he is, that God will express his wrath? If we don't take his word on that point, will we start holding on to his word regarding salvation more loosely? Or put it this way, if Noah had doubted that God was actually going to do what he said he was going to do and flood the earth, do you think he still would have built the boat? It took a hundred years or more. Pretty big amount of effort. If he had doubted God on one hand, would he have obeyed with the other? If we doubt God's intentions to judge, how long will we keep how long will we keep using the means of salvation and making them a priority? But we're called like Noah 
to take God at his word, to believe he is who he said he is, and that he will do everything he has said he will do, including the things that we're not particularly comfortable with. Belief means taking God at his word. But this belief is an actionable belief. We're supposed to do something with it. And the second thing you see from the life of Noah is that faith moves towards obedience. Inevitably, always, faith moves towards obedience. Now some would want to soften that or add nuance or exception clauses. But I don't think the Bible gives you that latitude Think, would Noah's belief in the word of God have saved him had he not actually gone out and done what God had said to do and built the ark? No. I think if the author of Hebrews had read the book of James prior to writing Hebrews, he probably would have quoted it here. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works and Noah is dead. Faith is expressed in obedience. Obedience, to say it another way, is the fruit of faith. The inevitable fruit of faith. The the relationship between faith and works and obedience is complicated. It's nuanced. It's hard to piece together sometimes. But I don't think anyone has ever said it better than John Calvin. He said it's faith alone that saves But the kind of faith that saves is never alone. It always comes accompanied with obedience, with holiness, with love for God and other. Noah obeyed. Matter of fact, the text that we read said that he did everything God commanded him to do. This week as I was mulling over that passage in the Hebrews passage, There's a few things kind of going on internally, you know, as I was wrestling with it, about Noah's response, especially that phrase, he did everything God commanded him to do. The first one, maybe it'll throw you off a little bit. When I was thinking about that, the first reaction I had was jealousy. He had a detailed list of what God wanted him to do, and he did it. I'm pretty good at doing lists, at least I like to think I am. But so much of the anxiety in my Christian life, of the wrestling, comes when I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to do. Because I don't have a list. I don't know exactly what being a a good Christian father, or a faithful husband, or, or a pastor who works for the glory of God, I don't always know in a detailed way what's required. But therein lies a tremendous opportunity for faith. That God is guiding, that God has given me all that I need for life and godliness. No, not a detailed list like Noah had, but he's given me what I need, and I can have faith in that. But But as I was wrestling with this jealousy, another emotion, I guess, hit me. And it was humbling. Because I realized that even the lists I do have, 
I don't really follow as well as I would say I follow. My wife can attest. She leaves me to-do lists and they go unheeded. The Bible has plenty of things that are very clear, crystal clear. And yet even in those, I struggle with obedience. Because I lack faith. The last thing that I was really wrestling with in this story of Noah, that he did everything that he was commanded to do because he had faith, was a realization that, that maybe I don't believe what I say I believe. If belief is expressed in action, if belief is expressed in obedience, and I don't obey, what other conclusion is there that I don't really deeply believe sometimes what I say I believe? And if that's you, I'm betting it's a lot of you, then your prayer with me this morning is, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Uh, Lord, we're here to command. Give us hearts to obey. Uh, Lord, we love. But heal our cold, dead hearts. Faith moves towards obedience. Genuine faith does. The third thing that we learn from the life of Noah is that faith puts the world in the wrong. Or as Hebrews says it, by his faith he condemned the world. This week on Thursday I was, I was sitting with a good friend of mine at Starbucks. and We were chatting in the morning. We were talking about the story of, of Noah. I was telling him I was getting ready to preach on this. And uh, we had fun filling in some of the blanks in the story. I mean, Noah's, the account of Noah's life is fairly detailed. There's a lot of it compared to Enoch last week. But there's still a lot of really intriguing gaps. Like for me, I want to know what his wife's reaction to this was. You know? Did she bring him lunch every day as he was working on the boat? Or did she say, you know, if you weren't spending so much time with the boat, we could get some stuff done around the house. No, what, what was her reaction to this project? We fill in a lot of gaps. A lot of times when we tell the story of Noah, we fill in these gaps with, you know, the people gathering around and, and mocking Noah as he's building an ark. That's our imagination. It, it might be justified, but the text doesn't say that. I would probably mock him. It's weird, right? Not knowing the whole story. We also often picture Noah preaching to the crowds and telling them what he's doing and explaining it and inviting them to repent and to come experience the salvation in the ark. That's us filling in the blanks. It doesn't say that. Matter of fact, the text would seem to point in the other direction. God says, I'm going to save you and your family. He doesn't tell Noah and invite everyone who will come in to come in. We fill in the blanks. Now, Noah is referred to in 2 Peter as a preacher of righteousness. But again, we fill in the blanks and think Noah must have been preaching verbally to people. I don't think so. I think what the author of Hebrews has in mind, what the author of Peter had in mind, is that simply by his life of faith and by his righteousness, 
faith that moved to obedience, he stood in bold relief to the corrupt and the wicked world, and he condemned them by his life, by his actions. And that still happens today. As we strive to live in faith and obedience, we buy our faith and buy our obedience, even without words, point out the unbelief and point out the wickedness in our world. We condemn the world, and that's good. It's good when we live holy, righteous lives, and the world notices, even if they're offended by that. Because when the world is condemned in that way, it opens the door wide for the Spirit to convict and to lead to repentance. Have you ever had a, a bad coach or a bad teacher in your life who just simply told you everything you were doing wrong without telling you how to correct it? I think I've been that coach before. That's not what we're called to do. Just wag our finger and point out everything that's wrong with the world. Not even just by how we're living, but by how we're living, we are exposing the wrong, the wickedness, the lack of faith. But then we can invite people to repent and to enjoy the salvation that is being offered. So faith puts the world in the wrong, but in that, the world can be convicted and led to repentance. The fourth and last thing, faith makes us rich in righteousness. This week I was watching a, a video interview with a, a Fuller professor and Bono, yeah, the front man for U2, one of the most influential rock bands in, in history. And this sermon's weird, right? I've quoted a pop movie, Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin, and now Bono. Okay? Uh, Bono is a, a deep, devoted believer. It comes through in his music, it comes through in his life. Uh, but he was asked frank questions and was told to give blunt answers. And the interviewer asked him, what do you think about the Bible? And he said, the Bible is the biggest, weirdest collection of the dodgiest people ever assembled. And he's not just talking about the villains of the Bible, you know, the pharaohs and the Nebuchadnezzars and the pilots. He's talking about the heroes of the Bible, too. Some of the dodgiest people ever collected. I mean, that's true of the heroes, even of Hebrews 11, this hall of faith. You look back, we'll give Enoch and Abel a skate because... They just don't know enough about their life. We know they weren't perfect. Only Christ was. But this guy that we're talking about today, this morning, Noah, read the end of the story. He's a drunkard who calls down curses on one of his sons. Next week, it's Abraham, who's a liar and exposes his wife to all kinds of ill treatment. Isaac, Isaac seems like a pretty good chap. He is not going to win Father of the Year awards. Jacob, 
liar, deceiver, cheater, Moses, murderer, Rahab, prostitute, Samson, sleeps with prostitutes, David, there's the grand enchilada right there. I mean, adultery, murder, lying, friend of God, dodgy people, sketchy, but through their faith, they became heirs of righteousness. They didn't earn it by their good living. They didn't even earn it by their faith. They're heirs. Heirs don't earn their inheritance. They're given their inheritance as a gift. By faith, they receive this gift. And that's the promise that is held out to us. Through our sin, through our frailty, and our failings, we can still be heirs of righteousness through faith. So when you use the word faith, what do you mean? What kind of faith do you have when the creek water is rising? Is it the kind of faith that takes God at his word and moves in obedience, that responds in action, that yes, stands apart from the world, but reaches out and receives the righteousness that is being offered? Not a righteousness that's your own, Christ's righteousness given to you that you receive. Is that what you mean when you say faith? If not, let me suggest that your definition then is not a robust enough definition. It doesn't mean what you think it means. For the rest of the summer, as we're going through this hall of faith, talking about walking in the footsteps of faith, Use that time to evaluate your faith. To make your calling and election secure. To weigh your faith in the balance and ask hard questions of it. Because it's important. Because it's by faith, we're told. Through the exercise of this gift that God gives us called faith that we receive eternal life. Evaluate your faith. Ask hard questions of it. And be prayerful. Someone between the services reminded me of a quote by a, an old saint. They said, all prayer is born out of incompetence. I am incompetent in faith. And so I pray. I pray with confidence that this is a prayer that God's going to answer. He stands ready to give us the good gifts that are required for living a righteous life. The chief among those is faith. So let's pray and ask that God would enlarge our faith and shape our understanding of what it means to walk in the footsteps of these giants. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you do not expect of us what you will not grant us. You call us to faith and you stand ready to give it to us. We pray that you would do that even now this morning. That you would enlarge our faith, that you would deepen it, that our roots would be sunk down deep 
into who you are, into a confidence in your character. Father, help us to believe everything that you have said about yourself. To not hold any of it loosely, but to cling to it. Father, you are the God who created us and loves us and calls us to yourself. In Jesus Christ, thank you and amen.